Well, in the midst of last week's somewhat negative sermon on divorce, I said that this week we were planning on talking about how to prevent divorce, but that's really the best way to follow up a sermon on divorce. But as I worked this week and kind of thought through and prepared for this sermon, I realized that's not really an accurate goal for us. That's not really a good goal, just prevent divorce. That's not really enough for us this morning. I want to redefine our goal. Uh, When you look at marriages, all marriages will move towards one of three fates. All marriages move in one of three directions. Um, Option number one, a couple falls out of love with one another as the years pass and decides to bring a painful marriage to an end through legal divorce. That's the option we talked about last week and the option we tried to prevent last week. That's option number one. Option number two, a couple falls out of love with one another, but they're not willing to get a divorce, so instead they settle for a loveless marriage. They simply become glorified roommates. They each live their own lives independent of the other. We call that emotional divorce. Statistically, about 40% of marriages end in legal divorce. There's no statistics on it, but from what I've seen, I would imagine the statistics are about the same, maybe a little bit more for emotional divorce, for loveless marriages. So 80-90% of marriages in this nation probably end in options one or two. Fortunately, there is a third option. It's rare, but it's a lot better. The couple grows to love one another more and more over the long years of their lives. Now, now they go through hard times. They may actually go through times when they don't really like one another, but they choose to continue to grow in love. They choose to continue to build their marriage and invest in their marriage, and as a result, they enjoy a lifetime loving marriage. That's really our goal this morning. It's not enough just to prevent divorce. We, we want to actually go the opposite direction. We all want option number three to grow more and more in love with one another throughout the years of our lives. But option three doesn't happen by accident. We all want it, but it's actually the hardest one on the board to do. Option number three is by far the hardest option of the three. Options one and two, those are easy. Those are natural for us. We are by nature sinners. We are by nature selfish. So when we do what comes naturally to us, we bring sin and selfishness into our marriage until weighed down by our sin and selfishness, our marriage collapses either in the legal divorce or emotional divorce. That's the natural option, options one and two. Those are the easy options. They're painful, but they're easy for us. Option three is different. Option three is not easy. Option three is not natural. Option three takes an incredible amount of work. If you want to build a loving lifetime marriage, it takes an incredible amount of work, not just at the beginning of your marriage, but throughout the whole of your marriage. Option number three takes a lifetime of dedicated work. Building a great marriage, a lifetime loving marriage, it's a lot like like growing a garden. A number of years ago, Julie and I decided to, to plant a vegetable garden in our backyard behind the deck. And so I think it was maybe April or May, I went out there and I put in an incredible amount of work. I, I removed about five, six inches worth of all the clay we have around here and I replaced it with really good soil and I mixed in fertilizer and I planted these, these great starting plants, like peppers and squash and tomatoes and I mulched it all and I watered it all. I got it off to a great start, but then it got hot. Around June, July, last thing I wanted to do was be in my backyard. It was incredibly hot, even at 10 o'clock at night. So I quit going out to my garden. And over time, what happened? 
Well, well, my squash, it rotted because I I never trained it up. So it just laid on the ground and rotted and and weeds grew up and took over the peppers and the tomatoes got covered with these nasty bugs, these huge bugs. By the end of July, we didn't even bother to gather vegetables anymore because the garden was just decayed. It was just awful. It was a mess. Well, outside of the Garden of Eden, that's the tendency of all gardens. (laughs) No garden grows of its own accord. You have to tend it. You have to watch over it. You have to guard it. If you leave the garden alone, it tends towards decay. That's exactly how marriages work. Outside of the Garden of Eden, now that sin has entered the human race, a marriage left alone, a marriage untended, a marriage unguarded, always tends towards decay and divorce. That's the natural direction that your marriage is headed unless you invest time and energy into it. Now, that's actually the goal of Satan for all of our marriages. He wants to keep us so busy. He wants to keep us so distracted. He wants to keep us frustrated with one another so that we don't invest time into our marriage so that over time it gradually decays, it gradually falls apart until under the weight of our sin and selfishness, it falls prey to either legal or emotional divorce. That's what he wants to do in every single one of our marriages. So how do we beat him? How do we resist the natural tendency of all things in this broken world, including our marriages, to move towards decay and divorce? How do we prevent that? How do we instead build a great marriage, a lasting, loving marriage? Well, it takes a lot of work. We've said that, but what exactly do we need to be doing? What work do we need to be doing in our marriages to ensure they grow in love over the years rather than fall apart? Well, that's the question we want to answer this morning. How do we build great marriages? So you you turn to Scripture and and you open up the Bible and you begin to look for passages on building great marriages. And what do you find? Well, not a lot. I don't know if you've ever read the Bible for advice on marriage, but there's not a whole lot in it. There's a few passages we know well, like Ephesians 5, but that's, that's kind of rare. There's not many passages in the Bible on building great marriages, and that's kind of a surprise. We know God really values marriage. He wants us to have strong marriages, so why didn't he give more direct instruction about marriage? Well, here's the reason. Because building a great marriage is founded upon something more important. There's something more foundational in your life that your marriage is dependent upon. God didn't need to talk a whole lot about building a strong marriage because there's something else that's more important. There's something else that will lead you to a strong marriage. That something else is your character. Growing a quality marriage is dependent on growing a quality Christ-like character in yourself. If you want a marriage that lasts, a marriage that grows in love, this is kind of counterintuitive, but you don't focus on your marriage. What do you focus on? Yourself. If you want your marriage to grow, you've got to grow. The greatest threat to my marriage is not something in my marriage. It's something right here. It's me. My limitations, my sin, my immaturity is what holds my marriage back. So if I want my marriage to grow, I've got to focus not on my marriage, but on me. If you want a lasting, loving marriage, you need to become the kind of person who can love someone else for a lifetime. That's the secret to a a lifetime loving marriage is becoming the kind of person who can love someone else for a lifetime. You've got to work on your growth, your character, if you want to become a person who enjoys a lasting, loving marriage. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Scripture. This is a subject that God has a lot to say about. Not a lot of direct advice about marriage, but a lot about character, about becoming the kind of person who can love someone else for a lifetime. We're going to focus on five characteristics 
of the kind of people who build great marriages. That's the goal this morning. Identify five characteristics that are always true of the people who build great marriages. Marriages that grow in love over the long years of your life. Characteristic number one of people who build great marriages is they are people who abide in Christ. Turn to John 15, the seminal chapter on abiding in Jesus. Let's look at John 15 and discover what this means. We're going to pick it up in verse 4 of John 15. Verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now let me explain the analogy here a bit. Jesus says he's the vine, we're the branches. He's probably talking about a grapevine. Uh, let's, let's talk about this. A, a branch on a grapevine. How does a branch produce fruit? Is it through the effort of the branch? Does the branch work hard? Does the branch strain to produce fruit? Well, no, fruit just happens. Fruit just grows on the branch if the branch is connected to the vine. If you break the the branch off the vine and lay it on the ground, there's one thing you can be sure of. It's not going to produce fruit. No grapes growing on a branch laying on the ground. It can't happen. doesn't matter how hard the branch works. It's not plugged into the vine, so fruit can't grow. Well, that's the same principle that's true in our Christian lives. If we want to produce fruit, it comes not through our efforts, but through our connection to Christ. Now, what is Jesus talking about here, this fruit? Fruit in John 15 is referring to supernaturally good words and actions. Words that you speak, actions that you do that are truly good. They are God-like words and actions. Words and actions that are honoring to God. Paul talks about those same fruit in Galatians chapter 5. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. He lists out a whole bunch. uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He lists all these things out that are supernatural fruit. Now when we say that they're supernatural fruit, what Jesus means is that you cannot create love in your life. You can act like you love someone, but you can't really love someone like God loves them apart from God at work in you. You you can't bear that kind of fruit through your effort. You can't be truly patient towards another person. You can fake it for a while, but you can't truly be patient without God at work in you. Patience is a supernatural fruit. God produces it, not us. These, these fruits that Jesus is speaking about, this is what we want in our marriage. If you want a great marriage, you need to be able to give to your spouse the fruit of the Spirit. You need to be get, able to give to your spouse love and joy and patience and kindness and compassion. You need to be able to give that to them, but you can't give that to them in your own strength. It is not within your ability as a human being to truly love your spouse, truly give them compassion, gentleness. You can't do it without God's help. You can't do it without Jesus' supernatural power working through you. That's the point of John 15. The only way to give your spouse the things that they need, the love that they need, the compassion that they need, the patience that they need, is is if Jesus is at work in you producing that fruit. So how do we abide in Christ? What does this look like? Well, abiding in Jesus, number one, it assumes a relationship with Jesus. You can't abide with someone you don't have a relationship with. 
we're not born into a relationship with Jesus when we're born onto this planet. We're actually born his enemies. We're born separated from him. He welcomes us freely into a permanent, eternal relationship with him through faith. He welcomes all human beings to have a permanent relationship with him if they'll simply believe that he, God's son, died for their sins in their place and then rose from the dead. The moment a person believes that truth, that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead, Jesus welcomes them into permanent relationship with him. That's how abiding begins, but that's not the only thing that you need to abide. Abiding in Jesus also requires time and obedience. The, the word abide, it's minnow in Greek. It means to remain with someone, to stay with someone. That necessitates time. You can't remain with someone if you don't spend any time with them. By definition, abiding in Jesus means spending time with Jesus. Now, what does it mean to spend time with someone who's in heaven and I'm here on earth? How do we abide with Jesus? Well, uh, we do it through two things. Number one, through spending time in the word. This is Jesus' words to us. As we spend time in Scripture reading it and meditating it and memorizing it and studying it, that is Jesus speaking to us. And then number two, through prayer. Prayer is us speaking back to Jesus. That's how the relationship works. We hear from Jesus. We speak to Jesus. We spend time in his word. We speak to him in prayer. You have to spend time in the word and time in prayer if you're going to abide in Jesus. Now let me connect this back to marriage. For a marriage to work, for a marriage to grow throughout the long years of your life, you have to be able to offer to your spouse love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. The only way you can give those things to your spouse is if you're abiding in Jesus, which means if you want a great marriage, the most important relationship in your life is not with your spouse. It's with your Lord. The only hope you have to truly love your spouse is if you're spending time with your Lord. It's only Jesus at work in you that can love your spouse like your spouse needs and can love your spouse in a way that grows your marriage. If you're not spending time with Jesus, you're cutting yourself off from his power at work in you. You're short-circuiting his power so that you can't love your spouse like your spouse needs. You can't grow your marriage. You're cutting yourself off from the only source of power to build a lasting loving marriage. You've got to take time in the word and in prayer on a daily basis. That's the most important step to growing a lasting marriage is that you spend time daily with Jesus. Now, not only are you spending time with the Lord in the word and in prayer, but to abide in Christ, you must also obey. Look at verse 10 of chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is saying, abiding in me, experiencing my power at work in your life, requires not just time, it also requires obedience. Now, all of us struggle with sin. All of us blow it from time to time. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about our willingness to obey. That we are willing in the strength of Jesus to obey him. What Jesus is saying is that if there is some area of your life where you have welcomed sin. You have accepted sin. You have surrendered to temptation. If there's some area of your life that you've welcomed in sin, then you cannot abide in Jesus. Jesus will not abide with it. He will not empower those who are walking in rebellion to him. He simply won't do it. Let me connect this again to marriage. Here's an example I see very commonly in marital counseling. Um, I, I see a situation where a husband has decided to live with lust. Now, all men struggle with the temptation of lust. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the guy who said, I'm tired of fighting it. I'm just going to accept it. 
Who cares what I look at on my computer? Who cares what movies I watch? It's not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it. It's not like I'm committing adultery. My wife won't even ever know. And so he welcomes that sin. He surrenders to that sin. He accepts it into his life, not realizing that that sin will destroy his marriage. Why? Because by welcoming in that sin, he's cut himself off from the power of Jesus. He cannot love his wife. He cannot express patience to his wife. He can't be gentle to her. He can't be compassionate to her. He can fake it, but he can't really do it because Jesus isn't at work in him because he's surrendered to sin. Okay, we're all going to fall. We're all going to struggle, but don't give up the fight. If you want to abide in Christ, if you want his power at work in you, you can't surrender to sin, not in any area of your life. Abiding in Jesus takes not just time, but also a willingness to obey. So the first characteristic of the kind of people who build great marriages is they abide on a daily basis in Jesus Christ. Second characteristic we see in Scripture of the kind of people who build lasting, loving marriages is that they practice selflessness. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Passage we've looked at before, we're just going to look at it briefly. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 3. I think this is the most significant passage on marriage anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't ever use the word marriage. It doesn't ever refer to marriage, but this is it. This is what I think the most important passage on marriage is in Scripture. Look with me, starting in verse 3 of chapter 2 of Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As you look at this passage, what Paul is doing here in verses 3 and 4, he defines selflessness for us. Selflessness sacrifices my rights, my desires for the good of someone else, in this case, my spouse. And then he models it for us. He points us to Jesus, the ultimate model of selflessness. Jesus, who is God, he has all the rights of divinity. He laid aside those rights to become one of us, to become a human being, not just a human being, but a servant to other human beings. He humbled himself even further by becoming a a cursed criminal, an innocent criminal who died on the cross in our place for our sins. Paul's saying, if you want a great marriage, if you want a great relationship with anybody, that's your model. You have to be willing to die to self, to put to death your rights, your desires for the good of your spouse. That's how you grow a great marriage. Now, when I say that I think Philippians 2 is the best passage of marriage, I really mean it. This is actually the passage I always use when I marry people. So he talked for like 10, 12 minutes about Philippians 2. And the first time I was marrying a couple, I grabbed Philippians 2, and I'm really excited. I love this passage. I can't wait to talk about it in the, in the wedding ceremony. I put together this message, and, and in this message, I talk all about how the key to marriage is a willingness to die, a willingness to put to death your rights and desires for the good of your spouse. And we're driving up to Dallas the day before the wedding, and I, I hand Julie the manuscript, and she reads through it. She's not getting excited. <laughs> she's, she's really not, not real favorable towards it. And she looks at me and she goes, Blake, you, you realize you, you use the word death or dying in this passage like uh, 20 times in, in your little 10-minute message here. Um, and I know theologically, honey, I know you're on track, but do you realize when people come to a wedding, they really don't want to hear about death? 
the, the couple you're marrying, they're really not excited about you talking about death and dying over and over again. And she was right. It kind of, it bummed me out, but I went and I softened the language. Um, but this isn't a wedding ceremony, so I can be blunt with you guys. <laughs> Philippians 2 is telling us that the secret to a good marriage is the willingness to die. The willingness to put to death yourself, your rights, your desires, to put to death your, your time, your possessions. You have to be willing to sacrifice those things if you're going to go a great marriage. Every day of your marriage, you face a choice. Will you sacrifice yourself, your rights, your desires, your time, your possessions to serve your marriage, or will you sacrifice your marriage to serve yourself? Those are the only two options. There is no third option. One of you is going to die, either you or your marriage. You choose. You choose each and every day. Will you sacrifice yourself on the altar of your marriage or will you sacrifice your marriage on the altar of yourself? That is the choice we face if we're married. I either sacrifice myself for the good of my marriage or I sacrifice my marriage to serve myself. That's the choice. Now, what does this actually look like on a daily basis? What does it mean to practice selflessness in marriage? Let me give you a couple quick examples. Selflessness requires that I'm willing to sacrifice my rights. Well, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul tells me as a married man that I have a right to physical intimacy with my spouse. Body of the husband belongs to the wife. Body of the wife belongs to the husband. We all married people. We have a right to physical intimacy in our marriages. So I have a right to physical intimacy with my wife, yet there was never a great marriage that was founded upon the exercise of our rights. That's not how you build a great marriage. Actually, the opposite. Great marriages are founded upon the sacrifice of our rights, giving up our rights for the good of our spouse. That's how we build a great marriage. So yes, I have a right to physical intimacy, but is that what my wife needs today? Is that what's best for her today? Is that what she desires? A great marriage is built by pursuing her needs and desires, not my rights. Second example, selflessness requires a sacrifice of my time. Time is precious to me. I have a limited quantity. I get 24 hours every day. I can't go buy extra of it. Time is precious to me, but sacrificing my time, here's what it looks like for me. When I'm leaving the church, I'm done with my job for the day. I get in the car and I tell myself, Blake, you've got three hours of work left. I'm leaving my job, but Blake, you've got three hours left. Of work today. You see, so many men, they leave their job and they think, I'm done. So they get home and they sit on the couch and they turn on the TV and they zone out. That's selfishness. That's going to destroy your marriage. What we men have to realize is, okay, we've left one job, time for our second job. Blake, you've got three hours of work left, time to go home and care for your kids and connect with your wife and serve her. If I don't remind myself of that, then I'll break my marriage down. I've got to remember, I've got three hours of work left before I'm done for the day. Now, that's not just true for men, men and women both. We have to be willing to lay aside our rights, our desires, our time, and our possessions for the good of our marriage. Either we die or our marriage dies. That's true. All people who build great marriages practice selflessness. Third characteristic of those who build great marriages, they accept others in love. Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Therefore, accept one another, just as Jesus Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, how did Jesus accept us? Well, in a word, unconditionally. He accepted us just as we are. We sang about that earlier this morning. He took us just as we are. He didn't say, you know, you've got to clean up this first. 
got to quit doing that first. No, he accepted us just as we are, and he'll never let us go. He doesn't change his mind later. Really getting tired of this, I'm going to push you away. No, he accepts us always, eternally, just as we are, unconditionally. You see that at work in his earthly life? He accepted these men to be his disciples, and then he didn't boot them out of the club when they did dumb stuff, which they did all the time. The disciples kept making dumb mistakes. They even deserted him on the night of his arrest. He never kicked them out. He always unconditionally accepted them in love. That's the way we're to love one another. Not just in marriage, but in every relationship, we are to accept one another in love unconditionally, just like Jesus did. Now, that kind of unconditional acceptance, I don't know if you realize this, but that's one of the most valuable gifts that you will ever give your spouse. One of the most valuable things you will do for your spouse is to tell them, I accept you unconditionally. I'm never going to change my mind. I accept you without condition. That kind of acceptance builds security and confidence in them. If you give them the other kind of acceptance, conditional acceptance, it actually works in the reverse. If you tell them, well, I accept you if you quit doing that. I accept you if you quit doing this. I accept you as long as I see this change in your life. That kind of acceptance, conditional acceptance, it builds not security in their life, but fear. It breeds insecurity in them, and that insecurity, it paralyzes them. It's only out of a position of security that your spouse can grow and change. If they feel insecure, if they're afraid that you're going to walk out, it paralyzes them. In fact, it probably brings out of them the very worst, the very things that you really don't want to see come out of them because of their fear. One of the greatest gifts you will ever give your spouse is unconditional acceptance. Now, how do you do that? Acceptance is kind of an ethereal concept. What does this look like in marriage? Let me, let me give you some practical points. Unconditional acceptance. Here's some things that do not fit with unconditional acceptance. Asking the question, did I marry the wrong person? Let me tell you, that's not a question you should ever ask. That is an absolutely 100% pointless question. Are you married? Then don't ask the question. Rather, it doesn't matter whether you married the right or wrong person. You married them, so God's will absolutely certainly for you is to stay married to them, to grow to love them more, to grow that marriage to be a great marriage. You know that's God's will for you. This question is pointless. Don't ask it. This is the kind of question that undermines acceptance. If your spouse worries that you think maybe you married the wrong person, how are they ever going to feel secure in your presence? Don't ask the question. It's never the right question to ask. No place for that question. Second, unconditional acceptance does not rehearse lists of things you don't like. Unconditional acceptance, whether you write the list down or keep it in your mind, there's no place for that list. If you are dwelling on the things you don't like about your spouse, then you're not unconditionally accepting them. Now, those things may come to your mind. You may at times have to convict them or call them out on something, but don't keep the list. Don't rehearse the list. Certainly don't share the list with other people. That's not unconditional acceptance. Third, unconditional acceptance does not try to change your spouse. There's only one person who can... (laughs) That's great, Steve. That's great. There's, There's only one person who can change your spouse. Who is that? That's God. God is the only one who has the power that's required to change your spouse, to change any person for the better. When you decide that you're going to try to change your spouse, whose place are you taking? God's. That that never works out well. We weren't meant to be God's. And so um, when you try to become God, you just end up hurting your spouse. You just end up communicating to your spouse, I really don't like you like you are. I like you like you could be, so I'm going to push you there. That doesn't build security. 
That doesn't build confidence. That doesn't build your marriage. Okay, so if there's things you don't like about your spouse, choose to pray for them. Pray that God will change them, but regardless of what God does, you accept them. Number four, unconditional acceptance never, never, never threatens to leave. If you threaten to leave, if you tell your spouse, if you don't do X, if you don't quit doing Y, I'm out of here, you just crack whatever ground of security they had. You take the ground right out from under their feet. You are breaking up your marriage when you threaten to leave. That's why for Julie and I, uh, the word divorce is off the table. We don't use the word. We never use the word. We don't talk about divorce. We never threaten to leave one another. That would destroy our marriage. Never go there. Don't even use the word. It will undermine whatever acceptance your spouse feels. Okay, so those are some things that unconditional acceptance does not do. Here are some things that unconditional acceptance does practice. The person who unconditionally accepts their mate practices trust in the sovereignty of God. Were there wrong reasons for which you got married? Doesn't matter. God was sovereign. Are you worried that maybe you married the wrong person? Well, quit worrying about that because guess what? God was sovereign. You didn't surprise God when you married that person. You didn't shock God. He knew from time time eternal that you were going to marry that person. He has a plan for you. He is bringing good out of all things. God is sovereign. Trust in his sovereignty. Trust that he has brought the two of you together. Trust that in his sovereignty, he can make you into a loving couple. He can develop your marriage to be great for the rest of your life. Trust in his sovereignty. Second, unconditional acceptance verbalizes unconditional commitment. It's kind of a nerdy way to say it. Basic idea is unconditional acceptance is not just an idea to keep up here in your brain. Unconditional acceptance is something you need to speak. You need to tell your spouse in words frequently, often, I accept you unconditionally. I love you unconditionally. You need to tell your spouse, no matter what were the reasons you got married, you tell your spouse, I believe that you are God's gift to me. I believe that God can grow us, can grow us to love one another more, can grow our marriage to be great. I believe it. Say it to your spouse often. Finally, unconditional acceptance practices thankfulness. When this list of things that you don't like comes to mind, you know what you do? You just stop thinking about it. And instead, you choose to think about things you're thankful for. Thankfulness is a spiritual discipline. It's something you can work at and grow at. You may not feel thankful for your spouse, but when feelings of unthankfulness come to your mind, simply change the record in your mind and think, okay, there's got to be something I'm thankful for. (laughs) There's got to be something about him or her that I'm grateful for. I'm glad they're not this way. I'm glad they are this way. Think of those things and then offer them to God. Tell God, I'm thankful for this about my spouse. I'm thankful that my spouse is not doing this. Thank God for those things, and as you practice thankfulness, you will become thankful. The emotions, the feelings will follow the obedient actions. Okay, so that's some practical ways that we practice unconditional acceptance. People who build great marriages practice unconditional acceptance of others. Fourth trait of those who build great marriages, they practice empathy. Empathy is defined as the ability to identify with and understand somebody else's feelings or difficulties. It was modeled really, really well by Jesus. There's this amazing account. Um, Jesus has a great friend named Lazarus who dies. And Jesus is in another town, and he's traveling to to Bethany um, where Lazarus died. And and the amazing thing is is that Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, and he actually knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he knew that this story was going to have a happy ending. Um, But he's on his way to to Bethany, and he meets Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, and they're just devastated. They're in tears. All the relatives are crying. Everyone is so distraught. And and in Jesus' mind, he knows, well, in about 20 minutes, I'm going to raise the guy from the dead. You're all going to be really happy. 
And yet that doesn't matter. In the midst of that scene, what does Jesus do? He weeps. He enters into their emotions. He knows the story is going to be happy in 20 minutes. Doesn't matter. He still connects and identifies with their emotions. That's empathy. It connects with how the other person is feeling, the emotions that they're feeling. That's what we should be practicing towards our spouses. That's what we should be practicing towards one another. Now, how do you actually practice empathy? I'm going to give you a couple quick little practical things you can walk away from. One of the best ways to practice empathy is to discover your spouse's love language. Many of you are familiar with that terminology. Um, your spouse receives love in unique ways. If you uh, assume that your spouse receives love just like you do, and so you, you try to love them in, in ways that communicate love to you, that's not necessarily communicating love to them. A guy named Gary Chapman wrote a great book, Five Love Languages. Again, many of you have seen this before, but he identified five different ways, unique ways in which we each receive love from others. Words of affirmation, words of encouragement, whether spoken or written. Quality time, undistracted time, that communicates love to certain people. Receiving gifts, whether they're expensive or not, thoughtful gifts communicate love to some people. Acts of service, you do things on their to-do list, that communicates love. Physical touch, hugging, holding hands, that communicates love. Each of us receives love in a different way. If, if you love your spouse with your love language, maybe acts of service is really what does it for you, and so you keep doing acts of service for them, and man, it doesn't seem to make them happy. What's going on? Well, it could be that that's not their love language. You need to practice empathy, and you need to understand love like they do. You need to figure out what is vital to them in this marriage. Uh, usually you can identify a love language by asking your spouse or asking yourself, um, when I don't do something, what hurts my spouse the most? If I don't spend time with her, if I, if I don't ever hold her hand, if I don't do service around the house, what is it that hurts her most? That's her love language. So learn your spouse's love language and love them in that way. That's empathy. You're getting in their head. You're trying to love them in the way that communicates love to them. That's first application for you. Second, practice empathy by walking in your spouse's shoes. Um, this one has been really valuable for me now that we have kids. Uh, I'll come home from a long day at the office and Julie and I will talk and, and she may say something or do something that, that at that moment it frustrates me. And my temptation is, is to lash out, is to strike back. Um, I'm way better off if I'll pause for a second and I'll find out how her day went. I'll put myself in her shoes. What was her day like? What disappointments did she face today? What in the world did the kids do to Julie today? We talked through that, we figured out, and I realized... Okay, she's not being mean to me. She had a really rough day. And that, that diffuses the tension in me. It pours water on that conflict. And all of a sudden, instead of feeling frustration, I feel compassion towards her because I walked in her shoes. Incredibly important tool, both for husbands and wives. When you feel the temptation to lash back at your spouse, pause and think through their day. What fears are they feeling? What disappointments? What disillusionments? What pain? That will help you to give them compassion. It will help you to practice empathy, and that will build your marriage. That's the fourth trait of people who build great marriages. They practice empathy towards others. Fifth and final trait, they edify with their words. They edify others with their words. It's really interesting. John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, what is Jesus called? The Word. In the beginning was the Word. Have you ever wondered why... Why is Jesus called a word there? That's kind of weird. What's going on with that? But when you look throughout Scripture from cover to cover, you realize that words have great power. How did God create the universe? With his hands? No, nope, with his words. The end of time, how will God judge the universe, destroy it, and create the new heavens and earth? With his hands? No, nope, with his words. 
Words have power. The words of God breathe life and death. That's why Jesus is the word. He is life and death. He has infinite power. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. 12, 18, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Your words have the power to do incredible damage to your spouse to cut them up like a sword. Or your words have the power to heal your spouse, to bring incredible joy and blessing and healing into their lives. Your words have incredible power. That old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that's a lie. Actually, words will hurt you much, much worse than sticks and stones. Sticks and stones bruise for a couple days. Words can hurt for a lifetime. Words are incredibly powerful. So if we want a great marriage, we need to become skilled with our words. We need to learn how to breathe life with our words, how to breathe healing into our marriage. We need to become great communicators like God is. So let me give you some practical tips to becoming a great communicator that I find in Scripture. Great communicators always avoid sarcasm. There's no place for sarcasm, not in a marriage, not in public, not in private, nowhere. Sarcasm is never fit. Great communicators avoid public critique or correction of their spouse. That's actually a big one. Now, your spouse may really do something dumb, and you merely may want to correct them. Wait till you're in private. Never do it in front of other people. Boy, that just tears them apart. Tears apart their self-confidence. So don't critique or correct your spouse in public. Um, Don't do it even when they're not there. When your spouse is at work, and you are with other people, and you want to talk about the dumb thing that they did, resist that urge. That's bad communication. That tears them apart even though they're not there. Good communicators don't ever speak negatively about their spouses in public, whether their spouse is there or not. Third, great communicators avoid absolute language. Words like, you always do this. You never do that. When you use absolute language, you put your partner, you put your spouse on the defensive. If Julie says to me, Blake, you never help me out around the house. What am I thinking? Wait a minute, I did here and I did here and I did here. I'm ready to, to launch back. I'm, I'm in the defensive. Conflict has started. Don't use absolute language. Say instead, Blake, on this day, you didn't help me out around the house. That's good communication. You're specific. You're not absolute. Fourth, great communicators avoid withdrawal. That's actually my tendency as a guy. I'm, I'm a people pleaser. I don't like conflict. When a conversation is painful, I'm looking for the exit sign. I'm looking for the quickest way out of this. I'll say or do anything to get out. That's bad. That just avoids conflict. It just delays conflict so that conflict can grow. Hurt feelings can grow. That never builds a good marriage. So don't withdraw, engage. Um, What does a great communicator do? So they avoid those things. Here's things that they practice. They practice listening before they speak. I feel silly even putting that one on the board because you've heard that one since kindergarten. That's like an adage. Always listen before you speak. We know that one, but we don't do it, especially towards our spouse. Um, You've been married to, to a person for 10 or 20 years. Chances are you've heard all their stories. You've heard all their jokes. Um, you, you probably heard the, the thing that they're saying to you right now, you probably talked about something similar uh, many times in the course of your marriage. And so, especially for us guys, the tendency is to just go into zone mode. Just let the words wash over us. We've heard them before. That destroys a marriage. If you want to speak in ways that bless your spouse, you have to engage. Guys, step up. We've got, we got to engage with our wives. We have to listen to our wives. Second, good communicators practice praising their spouses, both in private and in public. If you want to build your spouse's confidence, if you want to build their security, tell people how great they are. Whether your spouse is there or not, praise them in public. That is a gift to your spouse. That will really build your marriage. Third, 
great communicators practice speaking the truth to one another in love. You are actually one of your spouse's, uh, not one of, you are probably the primary pastor in the life of your spouse. Now, that's a weird phrase to say. Um, you think of, you know, maybe I'm, I'm your pastor, I'm the guy with the job of pastor, that's what you pay me for. But that's not, that's not really the, the, the primary thing that pastor is about. Pastor is someone who protects another person, who guards them from attack. Well, God has put you in the life of your spouse as their primary pastor. Julie is my primary pastor. She's the one who protects me from lies because she's the closest one to me. When, when lies come to my mind, when I'm tempted to believe things that aren't true, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling attacked, Julie is most frequently the one who speaks truth and love into my life who protects me from the lies of Satan, who reminds me of truth, who draws me to the Lord. That's what you do for your spouse. You are a pastor to them. You are encouraging them, speaking truth to them in love. If you have to say hard things to them, if you have to correct them, you're surrounding it in encouragement. You're building them up through truth spoken in love. That's great communication. Okay, so let's sum this up. Time is about up. People who build great marriages, these are the kind of people who build lasting, loving marriages. They're people who abide in Jesus on a daily basis. They're people who practice Christ-like selflessness. They're people who accept others in love unconditionally. They're people who practice empathy towards others. They're people who edify, build up with their words. Now, let's get specific. Let's, let's talk about some applications this morning. Uh, number one, you may have noticed I covered a lot of ground this morning. Lots of specific little things in my PowerPoint. None of us have got all these down. I don't have all these down. There's stuff I put up this morning that, to be honest, I feel like a hypocrite telling you about because I still struggle in that area. All of us have specific things from this marriage that we need to work on. So my first encouragement to you would be, um, in in about a day, all of this is going to be online. Uh, Go online and print out the slides or pull them up on your computer, the PowerPoint slides, and sit down with your spouse and talk it through. Look back over these points and ask your spouse, um, what, what do you think I'm weakest in? Of all of these things, what would you really love to see me grow in? Okay, ask your spouse that. Give them the freedom to tell you one or two things and then you say the same, you know, you, you tell them, you answer that question for them as well. And then commit as a couple that you're gonna work on one or two of these points this summer. You're gonna help one another to grow on one or two points. Sit down with each other and go back over that because you need to walk away with something concrete from this message. Okay, second, it's summertime. It's a great time to read a book. I want to encourage you, uh, I want to put before you a few books that have meant a lot to me. They're the primary source material for this message. Great, great books. A Lasting Promise, A Christian Guide to Fighting for Your Marriage. Um, That's the best book I've ever found on the issue of communication and marriage. These are four psychologists or counselors. They've done an incredible amount of study. They can actually sit down with an engaged couple, let them talk for a few minutes, and then predict with an 80 to 90% accuracy whether that couple will stick together or get a divorce 30 years later. 80 to 90% accuracy just by listening to them talk. That's how important communication is. So really good book. They give a lot of really, really good advice about how to communicate well with your spouse. That's a really good one. The Five Love Languages, that's the book I was talking about by Gary Chapman. Excellent way to practice empathy with your spouse is learn their love languages. This this book will help you to do that. Three, Building Your Mate's Self-Esteem by Dennis and Barbara Rainey. Possibly the best overall book on marriage I've ever found. Um, Really, really good about how to build up your spouse, how to build a marriage that lasts and grows in love over the long years of your life. That's a really good one. So pick one of these three that you haven't read, buy it, and the two of you read it together and talk about it. That's really how you make these books work. Don't just read it alone and, and set it on the shelf. Read it and then talk about it. Talk about where where is this connecting with our marriage? 
What can we learn from this book? So pick one of those and read it this summer. Third, be willing to get help. If, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't be afraid to get help. If you're not struggling, but you just don't know what the next steps are, don't be afraid to get help. It's really crazy in the church. Um, we're all really excited to get premarital counseling, aren't we? You get engaged, and, and, and you're there like the next day signing up for premarital counseling, but then you get married, and you start to really struggle. And for some reason, we all feel ashamed to go get counseling. We're willing to get premarital counseling, but not marital counseling. That's silly. That's cr- when we really need counseling is when we're married. <laughs> when the problems come out, that's when we need counsel. Please don't be ashamed to get help. Please don't be ashamed to talk to a friend, to talk to a pastor, to talk to a counselor. One of my favorite things about being on staff at the church is that I work with a whole bunch of other pastors, most of whom have been married a lot longer than me. I go to them for marital advice all the time. I don't know if you guys know that. I'm your pastor. I'm getting marital counseling all the time. I go to these pastors and I ask, man, this is going on. What in the world do I do? Please help me. Well, if I'm not ashamed to get marital counseling, as your pastor, you shouldn't be ashamed of it either. Talk to someone. Get help. I have a pastor friend in Dallas who he and his wife go to a marriage counselor every year. Once a year, every year. Whether they feel like they need to or not, they go for a tune-up. That's a great idea. Seek help proactively. Don't be ashamed to ask for help. Okay, I want to close us in prayer um, and, and pray that the Lord will grow us as a congregation of people whose marriages don't fit into those statistics. I don't want 80% of our marriages falling to legal or emotional divorce. Let's be the 10%, the 20% who grow in love with one another for a lifetime. Lord God, we thank you that you have made available to us supernatural power through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you that you can build us to love one another, to love our spouses more and more over the long years of our lives. Even through hard times, even through dry times, even through cold times when we don't really like one another, you can grow us to love one another more and more. Thank you so much for the power you give us through your Son and through your Spirit. I pray for every marriage in this room, Lord, that you would grow it to be something that glorifies and honors you. I pray for all the singles in this room, whether they've never been married or they've been married and divorced, Lord. I pray that you would grow them to become the kind of people who can love others, whether a spouse or just other people for a lifetime. These characteristics are for all of us, Lord. Please help us to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for this morning, Lord. We turn it all over to you in gratefulness. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.